Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your, your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Dan Engel, who is a board certified in adult psychology and neurology and uh, completed uh, uh, psychiatric fellowships in child, adolescence, and forensic psychiatry. And he has a very interesting book about something that most of us, most of us watching this have experienced personally in our life, which is uh, as an acronym called TBI or traumatic brain injury. Um, and it's pervasive. Now, obviously, uh, it's not the extremes we see in uh, war victims or people in sports injuries or football players and boxers, but it still happens. And he, uh, Dr. Angle has had personal experience with it, which is what uh, passionately motivated him to pursue this discipline and write a book about it. So uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. It's good to be with you today as well. So uh, why don't you uh, expand a bit on your history that I briefly uh, summarized and uh, explain your motivation for writing your book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went to college to play soccer. Didn't really know what I wanted to do after that. And I uh, had a series of concussions that led up to me choosing uh, medical school uh, to orient towards potentially uh, surgical medicine or ER medicine. And then two weeks before medical school, I broke my neck. And that was kind of a big entry point in a, in a recalibration of my direction. Uh, after I broke my neck, they gave me the option of holding out a year or going and starting with my current team. And I went ahead and started in one of those big contraptions called a halo device where they screwed into your skull and you're walking around fixated. And so for the first three months of med school, I was in this halo and it, it was the first thing that finally slowed me down, mm. helped me self-reflect and helped me realize that I was just driving such a level of intensity in my life that I didn't really enjoy. So I ended mm. up having much more fun in med school and residency than I did in high school and college just because I wasn't so intense with everything. Mm. And it oriented me from ER and surgical medicine into neurology and psychiatry that was more around like the neuro reparative aspects of brain injury and spinal cord injury, as well as the more humanistic side of understanding people and, and, and the stories of what make us who we are and the mindset of healing and how very pervasive that is to recovery. Yeah, I alluded to the fact that it was pervasive and certainly hardly anyone watching this has gone through an experience like you and having to wear a halo for a significant amount of period of time. But thank God that technology exists because you're able to function. Uh, but why don't you review how common this is and some of the examples that can cause this? Because I, I, my guess is it's like 80, 90 percent of the people watching this have had some form of TBI. Agreed. And a significant TBI themselves, and they know somebody that has. So it, it, it is consistently interwoven through, through the fabric of our culture. And um, unfortunately, the, the current awareness of its prevalence is outdated. The current definitions are evolving, and yet many professionals in the field still have old nomenclature and old, and old identification. Um, I was just talking with a client the other day and um, two different professionals in the field, one head of a neurosurgical unit in one of the northern states and the other head of a rehab center had both told her, this is a, she had played um, ice hockey through college 
had known significant sequelae, including three significant concussions. But each of those physicians said, well, you haven't had a concussion because you didn't black out. And that's not at all the case. And that's actually what a lot of people think. That, oh, if I didn't have a complete loss of consciousness, then I didn't have a quote unquote significant head injury or concussion. So when we start to recognize that um, old definitions no longer apply and we need to keep up with the new science, we see that there are millions of people that get documented TBIs and concussions every year. There are, and the numbers vary, as numbers do vary when we're looking at broad epidemiological studies, somewhere between four and six million people are walking around with chronic severe sequelae from TBI on disability. And the number of unreported TBIs and concussions is upward of 70 plus percent every year. So a lot of people experience them. Most of them are mild. Most of those will, will heal on their own. So the old adage, go home and rest, it'll be okay, has some merit. But when I had my concussions, and the last of which was after I broke my neck, um, got turned upside down in a snowboard park and put a eight-inch crack in the back of my helmet, and I knew something was off <laughs> because I had problems with attention, focus, concentration, memory, sleep, kind of like the, the, the classic post-concussive syndrome. And my neurologic attendings at that time said the same thing. They said, go home, rest, we hope it gets better. And this was 20 years ago, and they didn't have, we didn't really have appreciable technologies and therapeutics to heal it. So I put myself in the lab. I, it, was, it wasn't fine for me that things were just going to continue to be like subpar. And so I wanted to try everything out, um, put myself in the lab, see if it worked, see if it didn't work. And the things that worked uh, for me or had worked significantly for friends, family, and clients are the things that I ended up putting in the manual. Yeah, so you were essentially an early biohacker. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, a biohacker needs good quantitative tools. So, were you using uh, EEG to determine the effectiveness of your interventions? I was not at that point, which is a good question. Um, I was using mostly subjective and subjective internal experiences and mm -hmm. objective, whether they were written tests or performance exams or um, my ability to perform in the field or in the ring or kind of like in the in the movement sports or um, feedback that I was getting from my own uh, network. You know, how, what's my mood like? How is my energy level like? How is my irritability? Because we don't always self-observe that well. Sure. Um, most of the time that's the case. <laughs> most of the time. It's, and particularly when we've had a head injury. Oh, sure. Um, it's even harder, even harder to track and, and, and have that kind of witness perspective. So would it still be accurate to use the term concussion? Or is that a sort of antiquated, antiquated techno technological term now and maybe more precise to refer to it as TBI? Uh, so the question of, about concussion versus TBI as far as nomenclature is a good one. And generally, concussion equates to mild to moderate TBI. When we get into the more significant TBI, severe TBI, then we start to use that term because that has kind of a level one, two, three um, series. Okay. So why don't you discuss some of the ways that people watching this might know if they've actually suffered a TBI? And the reason this is important, because unlike 20 years ago, when you went through your trauma, there are some very effective interventions and strategies that you can use. And 
lots of them are pretty simple and effective. So mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't require a lot of money. It just you have to know they exist and, and use them. So wh what would uh, indicate to someone watching that, this, that they may have suffered a TBI? Great question. And it does also relate to the zeitgeist, the cultural kind of framework in our system where, where <clears throat> usually concussion or traumatic brain injury is, is equated to a really bad loss of consciousness or combat sports. And many people that I work with are not in either of those camps. So they may have had a mild to moderate TBI or concussion from a car wreck or from walking down slippery ice and falling and bonking the back of their head. And sometimes it doesn't really seem like this, the injury would have been that significant. And yet afterwards, there might be issues with concentration, mood, focus, the executive functions here in the prefrontal cortex that allow us to pay attention to what we're doing and shift sets between activities and to be able to lock onto a target and stay there to be able to see it through and have um, memory that's associated with uh, verbal recall or word recall. So these are more of the executive functions and then also very often people will experience mood or emotional dysregulation, irritability, um, thinking through like mud or feeling like they're in a haze or a fog, um, problems with sleep. Most people would experience uh, insomnia and a dysregulation in circadian rhythms, but some people experience hypersomnolence, particularly in the acute concussion mm -hmm. phase because the, the system needs to go into a quiet mode and convalesce and rest. So the old adage again of go home, rest, we hope it gets better has merit and oftentimes that's the best that somebody can do. So get into a low stimulation environment. So um, being away from electronic stimulation, stressful work, um, stressful engagements at home, being able to just really be, um, bring the energy home, rest the nervous system. And one of the technologies that I geek out a lot on and I think is just phenomenal because anybody can do it and there's no downside and there's huge upside is flotation therapy. Mm -hmm. Flotation therapy is kind of like the classic going in experience. And yeah. therefore, again, to be able to rest that whole. Um, yeah, well, and you, we'll, we'll discuss that in a bit because you've got a mm -hmm. few specific recommendations in your book, which I neglected yeah. to mention the title, which is The Concussion Repair Manual. It's available online. So that's the book that you've written that goes into this in far greater detail. But... <clears throat> It's obvious that if you get knocked in the head in some type of sport or you fall down uh, anywhere and you really get just you, know, you you remember that. But many of these injuries you won't remember. And, and would it be fair to say that a, a large number, perhaps the majority of these injuries that result in TBI actually occur in the home? And it could be something as simple and stupid as leaving the kitchen cabinet door open and you're underneath and you just go up and that's an immovable object and you've got a potential TBI. So mm -hmm. why don't you give us, that's clearly an example of, but there are others that people might resonate with and say, gosh, that happened to me. I didn't know I, that could cause this type of problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, oftentimes in that kind of arena, somebody would have a bonk on their head. It would be sore. It would heal on its own within 24, 72 hours and they would go on their way. Um, sometimes there's the cumulative effect. So if that, for example, happened, 
it's ideal to be as mindful in that next week to two week window of not getting another bonk on your head or a TBI because then there's a cumulative blow. Most people, if they just hit their head on the door or cabinet, it's not going to be enough to have a significant neurological sequelae moving forward, but sometimes it is. Oftentimes, the thing that happens in the home that will have negative long-term impacts is a fall. Mm -hmm. So if somebody slips on a rug, slips going down the stairs, um, there's, a, there's a significant momentum that jostles that, that brain inside the skull to a, what's called a coup-contra-coup injury or back-and-forth kind of injury. Mm -hmm then that's going to be noticeable. And then the same kind of rules apply of how to treat it. When people have um, an experience at home that might feel mild or insignificant, it's important to recognize over the next one to two weeks, is there anything that changes with mood, concentration, focus, um, ability to be easy in the space? Because oftentimes after injury, the, the nervous system's on hyper alert. It's, it's inflamed. And there's an inflammatory cascade that's happening. And so the inflammatory energetics of that look like psychological and cognitive downstream effects, irritability, not being able to like, you know, drop into center. If somebody, for example, has a meditation practice or, or they're able to come into their own um, center point. Okay, good. And we'll talk about some of those simple interventions that one can do use to address that infl inflammatory response. Before we get to the um, the treatment recommendations. There are some interesting novel and uh, new techniques to do assessment as to actually the extent that use infrared imaging. So can you discuss those? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are some great tests that are used, for example, on the sideline um, with iPads and questionnaires and infrared um, tools to be able to use to the skull to see if there's an ac active or an acute bleed. And the, the, the ability to be able to do that live in vivo, um, right in the midst of it. For example, concussion right now is the biggest name in sports. So if you're ever watching football and they have to go into the tent, they have neurodiagnostics as well as a neurologic exam that the practitioner or the physician will provide. And then to be able to see, okay, is this something that needs to be immediately addressed and therefore no more return to play? Or does it need to be um, watched for a little bit of time for another 5, 10, 15 minutes? Or is it clear and the person can go in straight away? And we've seen variable, variable efficacy of that in the NFL over this just this last year. Those protocols are getting more specific and refined all the time. But suffice it to say, it's important as soon as somebody has a significant injury to be able to get evaluated, whether it's by a professional on the sideline or in the emergency department or somebody that's trained in concussion care management to be able to assess what their level of safety is and what their level of um, potential risk should they have another impact. And just to come back real quick to what you said in the home, I'm reminded too that you know, many of our listeners are going to be adults. They're going to be able to kind of self-reflect and understand how they're feeling inside. But many of these injuries happen with kids. And so we also need to be really aware of how to be able to assess neurologic system and be able to self-observe if there's any change in their behavior. Because kids are rambunctious and moving around and running around. And, 
And if there is a significant injury and there's a change in function within the next few days to few weeks, then that needs a further workup and more assessment. Okay, great. And before we get into the intervention, there are some risk factors that people can have or may may know that they're a risk factor because a lot of people are doing the 23andMe genetic testing. And one of the things that that a test allows you to do, especially if, well, it doesn't tell you offhand, you have to run it through a, a secondary external database to figure it out like Prometheus, but it's only a few extra dollars, is the, the find out your APOE4 allele uh, mm -hmm. assessment, uh, which is of course a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And if you have one or two alleles, you're at increased risk. But um, interestingly, I interviewed da Dr. Dale Bredesen, who's probably, in my view, the, the world's leading expert in Alzheimer's. And mm -hmm. he, he brought the interesting assessment or conclusion that, that historically, thousands of years ago, almost every human was double APOE4. And it was actually uh, it's the normal. <laughs> And the variant now with APOE3 are, are the abnormal ones. But if you have it now, it really means that you need to fast. And if you don't fast, mm -hmm. you're going to have metabolic consequences, which is one of the interventions that we'll talk about in a bit. But mm -hmm. so why, why don't you discuss your perspective on the APOE4? Because um, I think it's something that before we get to treatment that, you know, if you, if you happen to know your status, you can know your, your, your increased risk for this. Yeah, it's a good point you're raising. Um, and so what's the, what's the interface between concussion and traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's disease? Mm -hmm. We know that people that have traumatic brain injuries have an increased risk downstream. And this new nomenclature of chron CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, low-grade accumulation of uh, concussions over time has an advanced Alzheimer's-like picture. So we're seeing a lot of pro athletes have Alzheimer's-like brains in their 30s and 40s. There's even been studies to show that um, collegiate football athletes who have significant known history of concussions um, start to show those changes themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's this acceleration of the process. And if, you, if somebody has a positive APOE4 allele, and particularly if they're homozygous or they have both copies and they have traumatic brain injury concussion on top of that, it accelerates the risk of Alzheimer's by at least tenfold. And wow. it might even be more than that. And, it's, and then if you look at dietary uh, issues and chronic inflammatory issues, for example, high sugar diet, not fasting and these sorts of things, and then you start to stack on lifestyle mismanagement or not not being optimized for uh, brain performance, then you're going to accelerate that process even further. So as someone who's personally experienced TBI and really spent the last two decades focusing on this and, and trying to find uh, tools to help remediate it, I'm many, many of our audience are parents and they have children. Uh, many of them uh, are participating in sports. And I'm wondering if you've developed any strong feelings about children participating in potentially concussive types of injuries like football or uh, even soccer, you know, or basketball. Or, well, football probably would be the major one. Do you, I mean, do you feel pretty strongly about that or any precautions you'd recommend or you just advise not to participate in it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, oftentimes, the it's a family kind of decision. Um, 
my experience was playing 20 years of soccer and then doing a variety of other sports. And um, I know that there's more and more uh, press and appreciation for the chronic subclinical head injuries that happen on the soccer field. For example, boxers in a ring who get slugged in the face, it's mm -hmm. about 20 pounds of pressure to their brain. Soccer players, if you go in for a full volley or a full header, 70 pounds of pressure to the brain. Mm, wow. So it's significant, right? And we just didn't know that mm -hmm. way back then. And my spec scans show this hypofrontality in the front because of that chronic frontal impact. Does it hurt when you do that? Um, it depends on the velocity of the ball. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It yeah. never occurred to me that was an issue, but wow, it makes sense once you bring it up. Right. And so what they're doing now is they're starting to outlaw or make it illegal for kids to head the soccer ball in soccer, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that allows kids to continue to play the sport, but allows a management aspect of the sport to decrease the risk of head injury. It's not so much that way in football. Um, although I do know some municipalities and communities that are starting to move more and more towards flag football up mm -hmm. until high school. Of course, it's, it's hard to transition, you know, if, if, if um, you've got an athlete that's really on that track, it's hard to transition from flag football to contact um, with helmets and tackling at the college level. You've got to kind of build up to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I get the concern and um, I think there are tackling styles. For example, rugby. Rugby is a full tackle sport, and yet there's less of an incidence of TBI in rugby than there is in football. And they don't wear and helmets. Why is that? And they, they don't, don't wear helmets. Wear helmets. Yeah. Right. The reason being is because they, they have a tackling style that's not led by their head because they're has a different and, – and, Certainly, there is TBI and concussion in rugby, but there tends to be a lower incident. So there's a stylistic component to that. Um, I think there's a lot of education that is happening more and more now and should be. Um, if, um, if parents are concerned and, and yet they want to continue to opt their kids into sports, then I would have a really clear conversation with the coach about what they're stylistic um, educational tackling profiles look like? Are they asking them to lead with their head? Are they bringing this stuff up? Is there a clear discussion about the importance of brain health and the, the necessity for recuperation after a concussion? Do the players themselves know what the long-term potential downstream effects are? All of those things. And then that's the educational piece just around the sports. And then the educational piece around the lifestyle management and the dietary management and the potential targeted supplementation management, because we can bring in supplements mm -hmm. that help guard the, the brain against trauma sure. and inflammatory cascades and the, the repeated sequelae should another injury get stacked on it. So there's a lot of, that's why I wanted to put just as much information in the book that I think was usable mm -hmm. so that we can have these kinds of above board discussions. But Sure. Well, I've well, heard numbers around like 25% of parents are opting their kids out of contact sports, including football, because of the education and, and advocacy that's coming out now. Well, that's good. That's good. Especially, I'm sure a large part of it is through leaguers like yourself. So um, let's discuss some of the pro preventive strategies uh, that you discuss in your book, which is, uh, I would imagine the major one would be the omega-3 fatty acids, especially animal-based DHA and EPA. So 
And then we can go mm -hmm. into some of the other things like uh, turmeric and curcumin, some of the your other good ones. So why don't we mm -hmm. start there? Sure. Yeah, the it's interesting that many of the technologies, the repair, orientation, um, therapeutics, the supplementation strategies are good for optimizing brain function if you're already good. So going from good to great, they're also good for repairing neurologic function if you're already injured. So there's a lot of overlap there. So your point then about bringing up preventative measures and not just like recuperative and therapeutic measures after an injury is, is similar. Um, fish oil is one of those great modalities to utilize. And there's even more and more appreciation now about the, the benefits of fish oil at the higher doses and um, more appreciation about less risk at the higher doses. So for example, 20 years ago when I was in medical school, there, the, the rule of thumb was to stay off of fish oil before surgery. And that's even changing now. I think uh, the Department of Surgery at OHSU this came from Mike Lewis, who's kind of a, an expert in the field of fish oil as it relates to concussion recovery. Um, the surgical department at OHSU, Oregon Health and Sciences University, is even advocating fish oil pre-surgery because outcomes are better. So the, there's a whole shift in the science. Um, of course, it's also known that like two-thirds of all the Nobel Prizes for scientific discovery were shown later to be false or something like that. So the, the field is always changing. Science is always evolving, and so is concussion care. Um, after a concussion, the dose range may therapeutically get up to 10 to 14 grams, mm -hmm. as opposed to the preventive, which is like 4 to 6 grams. And that's the and of a combination com like the combination of EPA and DHA both together, right? The combination of both, yeah. And and a one to one ratio as much as possible of mm -hmm. EPA to DHA. Usually the DHEA is three to six to one EPA. Mm -hmm. You get much more mood regulation and neurologic support uh, in a close one to one ratio. And um, there are uh, consistent benefits downstream besides just the neurologic support cardiovascular support, uh, digestive support, um, immune system support, et cetera. Um, so DHA is, uh, fish oil is kind of like top of the chain um, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, fish, and then for reparative. Well, before, before we go on there, fish oil is certainly useful. There's no question, especially since you can use it in concentrated forms so easily, but maybe not necessarily the ideal form for a wide variety of reasons. Usually it's in a triglyceride form. It's not absorbed as well. You tend to get belching and a lot of it's contaminated or processed in a way that oxidizes these very perishable fats. So theoretically it's Definitely. good, but you know, you've got to pay really careful attention to the quality and I'd probably recommend <laughs> right. balancing it with some natural foods like fish, like small fish, like sardines or, you know, other seafood. Right that have high sources. Now you're not, it's gonna be really, really difficult to get those levels of, of DHA and EPA from food, but uh, you could provide some of it at least. Yeah, I think your point's a really good one, um, which is that uh, fats are sensitive and they're volatile. Mm -hmm. And so if we're working with therapeutic um, supplementation, I, I typically recommend um, people be as, as scrupulous as they can be where, they, where, where and how they source it. And don't skimp on it and buy it in big bulky mm -hmm. bins that have probably been stored at high temperatures in warehouses for who knows how long. Uh, so yeah, your your point there is a really good one. And 
get our, our source from food, then, then the body's going to utilize it, absorb it, assimilate it, and it's going to be there, therefore that much But it is a magnificent tool. I mean, it is so profoundly effective. And in fact, the pharmaceutical companies aren't stupid, and they've actually, uh, I guess, patented it or formulated it in a way that it's a prescription, and they can charge like $1,000 a month for it. But it's, it's used very effectively in pharmacological doses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's. I didn't know that it was in a. I didn't know that it was in a prescription or pharmaceutical form. Oh yes, there's a few companies out there, yeah, that do that. So if your okay. insurance company, you know, it's 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 sort of a hidden subsidy. The you know, if your insurance company pays for it and you're not paying for it, but ultimately we all pay for it because you know it's a thousand dollars a month. Someone's got to pay the bill, and the insurance company ultimately mm -hmm. winds up getting it back through increased premiums. So. Mm -hmm. They're not going to lose money in the transaction long term. They can't. Nope. <laughs> right. So uh, one of the other interventions you recommended early on was this flotation tank. And I'm sure most of us or the isolation tanks have, have heard of them. But in your book, you discuss actually ones that you could use at home that are obviously a lot more mm -hmm. convenient and uh, to use and probably even more cost mm -hmm. effective in the long run. So I think it was the Zenflow company, which you can get for under $2,000. So why don't you discuss that approach? Yeah, I, I think flotation therapy is on the front line of many different recovery and regenerative medicine protocols um, because it has the opportunity to reset so many different systems. And again, we're, we're looking at cost, um, cost analysis, risk-benefit analysis. It's extraordinarily high in the benefit range. There's essentially no risk. Anybody can float. doesn't matter how old you are, how sick you are, if you're on medications, you're not on medications. And therefore, it's a stackable therapy. And when somebody drops into a float tank experience or a sensory <coughs> deprivation experience, it's essentially the first time since they were conceived that they're without environmental stimuli. There's no gravity because there's flotation, right? You're in like, so just as if people don't know what a float tank is, it's like you're, you're floating in about a foot of water. Um, it's about the size of a king size bed. And there's about a thousand to 1200 pounds of Epsom salts. And so it's very buoyant, kind of like the Dead Sea. So there's no gravity, there's no proprioception, there's no skin temperature differentiation because the water is the same, same temperature as the skin, not core temperature. So it's hard to tell like where I end and the rest of the universe begins. Uh, there's no sight, there's no sound. So everything is offline, so to speak. 80% of what the brain is consistently bringing in is environmental stimuli. And now there's more energy towards the recuperative mechanisms. And it's both a brain technology and also a consciousness technology. Because being able to go into the experience of a flotation tank is like meditation on steroids. And if somebody's going through the use of it recuperative and regenerative, I also let them know they may very well likely find more peace in their lives outside of the tank, just like taking your yoga off the mat or your meditation off the cushion, because it starts to reset the neuroendocrine system. Cortisol levels normalize and global inflammatory markers normalize, blood pressure normalizes. So the relationship between the brain and the endocrine or the hormonal system starts to optimize in ways that we didn't, it wasn't really associated or, or expected that there was going to be all these physiologic benefits. Um, when the float tank was originally designed by John Lilly, 
um, in the 60s, 70s, uh, he was using it as a consciousness tool. Um, mm -hmm. And then he, um, there was a movie called Altered States, and there was the, the HIV scare, and people didn't want to be in you know, a pool of water where there might be like somebody else had soaked. So it kind of went underground for the 80s and 90s, and now it's going back through a resurgence. And if particularly, if they stack a series of floats, try and do eight to 10 floats in a three to four week period, get as many under your belt as you can, you'll start to notice benefits in whatever your symptoms were and outside. As people's mood starts to improve, they just start to find that little sense of ease and flow in their lives. And then after that, you can move into a maintenance routine, which is usually like one or two floats a month. Yeah. And to address some of the concern, well, the concern for the hygiene, I believe that some, a lot of the newer ones use, use ozone to, to yeah. disinfect it. So that's pretty safe, has virtually no downside effects. You know, so right. Have, Many of the filtration systems, you're already in salt. And yeah. so salt's going to be an antimicrobial medium. Um, and then the filtration systems are either UV, ozone, or hydrogen peroxide. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a big shift going from ozone hydrogen peroxide lately. So all of those are effective. Um, and it's, um, it's a good point because um, the industry has continued to, to keep pace with the potential concerns. And so some of those other concerns would be claustrophobia. That's like the biggest concern. If it's not hygiene, it's like, oh, I don't like to be in close spaces. Well, there, there's an easy way to do that with the lids propped up. Have people drop in, keep the lid open, stay in that kind of configuration as long as you want. And when you feel good, pop the lid down. If you get anxious at all, you can pop the lid back up. And that's about it. It's super simple, easy, sophisticated technology that continues to, to orient us towards like our, 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 the healing potential that resides within all of us. Yes, indeed. And the opportunity to rest our minds and get back into contact with that. Yeah. And then one of the other benefits that I don't really see people mention, but it's obvious that the salt you're using is, is mag magnesium sulfate or Epsom salts, a uh, thousand or 2000 pounds of it. There's a lot of it in there and soaking in that for an hour will unquestionably help improve your magnesium stores. And almost everyone watching this is deficient in magnesium, especially, and I think it's kind of like vitamin D, which I helped popularize the awareness and consciousness of that about 17, 18 years ago. Uh, and the, the therapeutic levels were like 400 units a day. Now we know it should be several thousand. The therapy, mm -hmm. similarly, the, the, therap the therapeutic recommendation or the RDA is like 400 milligrams of elemental vitamin or elemental magnesium, but probably should be closer to a thousand or 2000 milligrams. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you're going to get some of that for free. <laughs> Agreed. There's a side Agreed. effect. So it's, it's a really great idea. And then the Zenflow company, it seems like they've, it's been around for a few years and they can sell it these has. tanks for homies for like $2,000. Yeah. And their home kits and their blueprints for their home kits, they started as a, um, a Kickstarter fundraiser campaign several years ago. And it has caught, it, it's um, become more and more popular because people wanted to have um, kits and tanks at home and they wanted to be able to do it on their own at a much more uh, cost effective price point. And so they have gotten more and more sophisticated through that. And there are other companies online that do that as well. 
because ideally this is a home-based practice. This is something sure. that we're able to access and do on a regular basis. And because that market is also opening, many of the float centers themselves are starting to offer uh, Groupons and package deals where people can come in and and develop not just a float experience but a float practice. Good, good. Now another uh, intervention that can be used um, is hyperbaric oxygen, uh, and similarly there are alternatives to that because you know most people aren't going to buy hyperbaric oxygen chamber for their house although there are available they're not quite as good as the the clinical ones but you can get do something like live o2 which is an oxygen concentrator that you use with exercise and it can provide pretty similar results but why don't you first discuss the benefits of hyperbaric oxygen and then maybe transition to the live o2 which is yeah. available for home use and a little more expensive than the flotation tanks but you know still provides mm -hmm. a lot of benefit yeah hyperbaric oxygen is getting more and more press for benefit of acute TBI and chronic TBI, as well as even chronic stroke recovery. There's a new study that's coming out, or was maybe just released, I think it's coming out this month, about the benefit of um, stroke recovery being six months out after a stroke. And being in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber is essentially you're in a, what looks like essentially a capsule about the size of a single bed and some of the old chambers are look, like, look like these diving bells, and they're kind of um, old and clunky. Um, I, I personally like those, too, because they, they're held, um, and they feel like you're bit of, in a bit of a womb experience. For some of the newer ones, are acrylic-based, and you can see out, and they're perfectly clear, so there's not quite the, the sense that somebody can get of claustrophobia. Anyway, you're in this capsule, and it's a pressurized tube with pressurized oxygen. And the oxygen, what ends up happening is it gets saturated into the tissue as opposed to just being delivered through the bloodstream. And in the midst of being saturated into the tissue, it goes into all the, the neuroreparative mechanisms in the entire neurologic system from head to toe. We have been using and setting hyperbaric oxygen mostly over the last few decades for wound recovery. With pressurized oxygen, um, it essentially accelerates all the wound uh, repair, whether it's in peripheral vasculature or in central vasculature around the, the nervous system, brain, spinal cord. And it's interesting, too, that one of the earliest indications that we were using hyperbaric for was for diabetic wounds and Alzheimer's disease. And some of the, the problems with neurodegeneration is considered type 3 diabetes. Maybe you can comment on the LIVO, too. Are you familiar with it as an alternative? Um, is LIVO2, what I heard you say was that um, you're essentially using oxygen and oxygen, uh, oxygen concentrator, and yet you're still breathing it in, right? Yeah, while you're exercising. But if you are, you're not familiar with it, that's fine. It's just a less yeah, expensive, like, easier alternative to hyperbaric. Is that the um, EWAT acronym? Yes. With oxygen therapy? Yes. Yeah. Um, from what I've heard from my HBOT colleagues, it's not as effective as HBOT for neurologic re uh, recovery because you're not because you're not saturating the tissues. Because oh, you're not driving oxygen into the tissues themselves. Yeah. Now you can still get a lot of benefit by hyperoxygenating the system if you have a low um, PO2, you know, particularly if you're at altitude. EWAT is amazing at altitude because mm -hmm. a lot of people are walking around with PO2s at like 92, 93%. And you can get it up to 97, 98, 99%. You're gonna feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, so that's for sure, but I don't think it has the same cross-lateral benefit um, between okay. um, HBOT and EWAT. 
thank you for that feedback. So let's progress to some of the other therapies. Uh, when there's a large number of them, I'm not sure that we're going to get to the majority of them, but uh, you talk about LLLT, which is low light laser therapy, but is more recently uh, redefined as PBM, photobiomodulation. Uh, typically, typically done with lasers, but you know nowadays it's done with LEDs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the so if we're if we're talking again about the five kind of primary building blocks of light, uh, what life, light, water, oxygen, nutrition, pulse electromagnetic fields. So if we're talking mm -hmm. about light, and light being in that low level laser therapy, or in the LED therapy, or in the UV spectrum therapy. There's a lot of different studies that show light's beneficial. And when we're talking about neurologic recovery or building ATP production, driving mitochondrial function, there are certain um, wavelengths that seem to be optimal for that. Mm -hmm. Most of the wavelengths for neurologic recovery are going to be in the near-infrared and far-infrared spectrum. Near-infrared spectrum being like um, 810 to 830 nanometers. That's a lot of where the data is coming from. And, and this data is decades old. A lot of the earlier um, LLLT um, data came from Russian studies in um, the early 80s and even beyond or earlier than that. Um, so there are some handheld devices that can be used. And particularly, my understanding too is that there's some benefit to red, like maybe 660. Uh -huh, for the LED, right. So a lot okay. of the technologies too will combine the two. So you've got these diodes where if you're using a, a pad or a band or something specific and localized, um, you'll see the diodes where some won't look turned on and some will look red. Mm -hmm. And the ones that don't turn on are essentially in that um, near-infrared spectrum, but then you have a bunch of benefit in driving that mitochondrial function, you're right, in the red spectrum. So being able to, to combine these therapies um, you're getting a couple of different complementary wavelengths um, to support the process. And um, a lot of the data is showing, too, that when we can localize the therapy, particular area of injury, then we're up-leveling function, right? So if we know there's a particular area of the brain that's compromised, and so if we're doing a functional neurologic exam and we can tell which part of the brain is off, then we can localize that therapy to a parietal system or frontal system or occipital or wherever it, wherever it might be, as well as using um, uh, reparative neurologic functional techniques. And um, the, the most sophisticated kind of orientation that I've seen to, to identify where the brain is off and therefore where to target the therapeutics is functional neurology, um, much of which has been kind of honed in by chiropractic physicians. They seem to be really good at kind of um, dissecting that neurologic exam and getting as specific and, and um, localized as possible. So you also mentioned PEMF, and that's actually one of my new passions. And I uh, continue to be a big fan of PBM photobiomodulation, but I'm thinking PEMF might be even a more profoundly effective therapy. I'm wondering if you could expand on that and uh, and specifically address the types of devices that are being used to imp to provide that the therapy mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's fascinating too when we start to look at the different technologies that are stackable on one another mm -hmm. for example if we're looking at those basic building blocks of life then uh, light and water and frequency technologies 
All of these are driving similar processes. And if they're doing that in a complementary way, then are there ways and devices and methodologies where we can stack these therapeutics in order to get an exponential effect? So if we're optimizing um, voltage and frequency into the cell, then there are going to be um, energy thresholds below which disease happens and above which optimized function happens. So pulse electromagnetic field tends to raise the voltage in the, and the energy in the cell, in the system, globally to improve physiologic function. Um, there are different styles and there's a lot of different, just like neurofeedback um, has a lot of different modalities and, and machines and, and um, targeted um, protocols. PEMF is really similar as well. Some people will say the low uh, voltage stimulation that is more like the sinusoidal waveform of the cell's energy matrix is ideal. Some will say stronger uh, energy into the system is better so that it can hold the charge for longer. Um, that I haven't ever seen any head-to-head um, -head studies on whether the low voltage systems or the high voltage systems are better. I've seen benefit in each of those. They work quite differently. And I've had passionate conversations with a lot of different researchers and physicians about what, which ones they think are the best ones. I tend to use a combination of both low voltage systems and high voltage systems. Mm -hmm. There's a low voltage system called a beamer and there's a high voltage system called a pulse. Mm -hmm. um, I found benefits in both. And then if you're looking at that pulsed electromagnetic frequency, there's also a subset of pulsed frequencies called transcranial magnetic stimulation, mm -hmm. which is more um, based in um, magnetic impulse to the brain. And you can do superficial or deep. And this is where, again, the science is evolving to see which is better for TBI or concussion. And it might, again, at that point, be representative of the level of concussion. So, for example, if you've got a super strong whiplash injury or when I got turned upside down in a snowboard park and I cracked the back of my helmet, my brain bounced this way horizontally versus when I broke my neck and dove off a pier and hit my crown, it went axial. So an axial load will have a different um, transactional force in the brain than the horizontal. And when you're looking at a spec scan or a functional MRI scan, then you're getting more specific on being able to see, oh, okay, is the challenge at more of a lower um, cortical level? So is it involving the master glands, hypothalamus, pineal, pituitary, or is that as a more superficial cortical level involving the executive functions? And so that might itself be indicative of what therapy you get because you get, you, if it's deeper, then you need to get into the deeper structures. And that's another way. If we got into the whole discussion around hormone cascades, mm -hmm. one of the challenges that people have with concussions is their, their hormones go off. Mm -hmm. And their hormones go off because the master glands are off. And when the master glands, the pituitary, hypothalamus, and pineal are off, then they can't tell the rest of the body what to do. And so why if we're trying they, to dream, what's the, the precipitating cause for that? Just the brain injury and inflammation, secondary inflammation? Right. And the level at which the brain was concussed. So that coup, contra coup, a really significant uh, horizontal or straight axial load will tend to pivot that pituitary um, because where it, where it sits in the on its stalk and the cell of tersica, it's really 
prone to getting sheared forces and to compromise its function. And so if the pituitary is down, right, the adrenals, the thyroid, and, and the gonads, how to function, then you might be, we might be looking at tests that show hypothyroidism, but it's not a, it's not a secondary, it's a primary. It's coming from the, the central axis, the master mm -hmm. gland itself. So at that point, we need deeper structure therapies. We need deeper um, modalities. Well, like getting back to PEMF, uh, pulsed electromagnetic fields, of course, uh, I've been teaching a lot about the dangers of EMFs, but this is actually a therapeutic application. And actually one of the reasons why I'm biased towards this, this, the smaller voltage systems, and I think this higher ones could be potentially problematic, but not necessarily, you just have to be careful. So I like to always err on the side of caution, uh, but you know, we could spend like a, an hour, two hours talking about that, which we don't have time to. I'm actually gonna interview uh, William Pauley, just wrote a good book about PEMFs. I don't know if you've seen it yet, right. but it just, it just came out. But uh, one of the um, other therapies that you discuss in your book is transcranial direct current stimulation or TDCS, which mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of because it seems to be more of a shotgun and not a specific. And it's kind of like reminds me of uh, <laughs> electroshock therapy to the brain. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's a smaller voltage and dose, but I'm wondering if you can comment on your experience with TDCS. Yeah, some clients have had incredible experience with it, and many have had, they didn't notice much. Yeah. And that could be because of that global stimulation, it's not as specific as it needs to be. It could be because the frequency is not as high as it needs to be. Uh, it could be because of their global inflammatory load is so high that, that first the inflammation needs to be settled before they'll see any potential benefit. And I think if, if, it, if it's gonna work, it works early. And if it doesn't work, then we leave it and move on to something else. I, I wanted to put it in there, not so much because I've had direct experience with it being beneficial for clients, but a lot of people who I've worked with have said in the past that they've used it and it was helpful. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I appreciate your comprehensive approach. Now, another valuable tool, and I'm, I, I suspect you have one being a neurologist and this being your uh, field, would be an EEG. Um, and it's a powerful, powerful tool. I was tempted to get one, but the, it's a pretty complex piece of equipment, requires an enormous amount of training and uh, really a commitment in time, effort, and energy that I just simply don't have. But I still may pursue it, but actually go to a center because I think there's very valuable components to it. And I, I probably have TB and I just don't remember it because it's just, <laughs> that's just the nature like everyone else. Right. But I think there would be great benefit. In it. And you talk about in your book about the uh, uh, Dr. Jim Hart and a bi being a, the BioCybernaut Institute, where basically it's a double full-time job where he's got like 12 hours a day for seven days that you're doing this training that's just insane. It's like, I don't, you don't have even time to, to, to eat or sleep. Right. Uh, it was a pretty so intensive protocol. It, yeah. Did you did you do that protocol? I did. Oh yeah. my gosh. So why don't you <laughs> why don't you share your experience with it? Yeah. Um you you're bringing up a great point which is this last one in, in neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is one of those things um that there's a lot of different tools, there's a lot of different levels of expertise. Um some units only have two leads, some have all the leads. Um which Jim is Hart's like an eight, 18 or 20 leads, right? Um, yeah, actually even further, like 40 to 60. 
leads. Wow. Well, okay. There, there are some that are the full and some that are basic, and then the eighteen to twenty is kind of like in the middle because they're a little okay. bit. The caps are easier to put on. It's a little bit e easier to use, um, and it is a whole science just by itself mm. for sure. And I've seen amazing results with people who know how to do it really well. For example, like Jim Hart's system, um, he has the most sophisticated system I think probably in the world. He has three different locations. And he, he's super intense with it. I mean, you go in to master your ability in real time to see where your brainwave patterns are firing and then to lock into the necessary thought modalities and internal state to be able to consistently access an alpha state. He also has um, uh, delta and theta trainings too, but his alpha training is nine levels. <laughs> and then his delta training is nine and theta. So there's a, you can go really deep down that rabbit hole. And I've been working with um, a very kind of on the other side of the spectrum because I was curious to see what it was like, a very simple system that is only 20 to 30 minutes a day. And you're watching a movie and it fades in and out the, the picture and the sound. Oh yeah, and I own one of those. Oh, okay, great. Wait, so that's wait, a, I forgot the name of it. It's uh, I think it's Evoke. Well, it's a similar technology. I mean, it's not that specific one, but I, I have regrets yeah. getting it. I think these other techniques, I'm really curious. I mean, you put in a week of 12 hours a day and how you would rate that intervention compared to all the other uh, modalities you discussed in your book. Do you think that was one of the most effective or I mean, yes. what's, your, what's your perspective? I do because I think it's so helpful to be able to to increase our own capacity to lock into the chosen neural frameworks that we desire. And if these neural frameworks around are, are based around just pure neurologic function, like alpha states, great. Mm -hmm. Because we know when we're in an alpha state, we're more centered and present. We're more effective in what we do. We're not as hyperactive, like taking too much coffee. Uh, mm -hmm. And if I can access that and find that place within myself, then I'm starting to generate my own sense of personal empowerment. Same thing with flotation therapy. Does Dr. Hart do a diagnostic assessment to figure out which state you need to work on? Because you know, I'm sure this, most of his clients don't come in and say, oh, I need to up, upregulate my delta. <laughs> right. Yeah. First, you would need to know, like, what are the benefits of upregulating your delta? Yeah. Um, he does uh, an assessment before and after. Most people have already opted into what they want to work on on their own. With us matching, okay, so what are your symptoms? What are you desiring to accomplish? What have you tried in the past? What does your brain wave pattern look like now? What do we, what, what have we seen with most of our clients who have gone through this that need how many treatments over how long a period of time and for how long in each treatment? So ideally it's individualized to the client's direct symptoms and their goals as possible. But neurofeedback is one of those things, again, that consistently when, when in the hand, just like any healing art, mm -hmm. consistently when in the hands of somebody that knows what they're doing really well, it's like a race car. You give mm -hmm. a race car to a teenager, it's gonna kind of bonk around, but if you get to Andretti, it's gonna be like art in motion. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I, I'm typically, I typically recommend that my clients, you know, First of all, treat working with a new provider like dating. It doesn't mean that you have to marry that person, see what their experience is, see if they have any um, 
benefit in working with you to get you from a, point A to point B as efficiently and effectively as possible. Great. Now, uh, we're nearing the end of our uh, time together. So I wanted to go over two more points, though. One is the use of CBD, cannabidiol, as a, as a treatment modality which is becoming progressively legal in more states now. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you can discuss that and then briefly we can close on a really great section of the book that you have at the end, which is the 10 rules of engagement, which is a pretty extensive great. interaction guide. <laughs> yeah. Um, with CBD, it's, it's up there with fish oil, as far as I'm mm -hmm. concerned, for neuroreparative support. Um, it's been interesting that the DEA or the NIMH under the DEA has had two medical patents for marijuana for close to over 20 years, and yet it's still been Schedule 1, which is hypocrisy just by itself, because Schedule 1 means benefit, and it's highly addictive. Mm -hmm. Well, there's obviously a medical benefit, otherwise you wouldn't have the medical patents. So we know that there's a therapeutic experience that people have with cannabis. Cannabis has two primary components that we're talking about when we're talking about therapeutics. One is THC and one is CBD. THC has a psychoactive component. CBD has a neuroreparative component. There, there seems to be an upregulation effect or, or an enhanced effect if there's a little bit of THC with mm -hmm. CBD. So the, the CBD to THC ratio would be like 20 to 1. And we know right. that... I've seen studies even 10 to 1. Oh, you, yeah. Well, you can go down to yeah. one to one. Yeah. 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 Well, it's just still pretty high, but you don't need a lot of THC, is the point. Right. It's a relatively very small amount. Exactly the point. Usually subpsychoactive. Right. And we've seen consistently the benefit in the neurologic system, whether it was um, stroke recovery, concussion recovery, or seizure and epilepsy support. So, a lot of that's kind of like where CBD came online. Um, in, in its uh, potential support over, these la over this last decade was with kids who had had intractable epilepsy and weren't getting benefit on pharmaceuticals. And so when they, were when they were either stacked on with CBD or transitioned off with just using CBD as a primary, their epilepsy got better. There seems to be this kind of like neurologic repair effect, this um, CBD that the CBD receptors are globally affiliated with neurologic function throughout the entire brain. And when we're, when we're engaging and stimulating those receptors, then we're seeing the neurochemical cascade towards repair, um, regardless of the input, but particularly with concussion. So that's why uh, during the acute phase, if somebody has an injury that is significant, I say, first and foremost, do a couple of things. Um, well, Lifestyle management, get quiet, float you can, yes, take fish oil, take CBD, um, even vitamin D, melatonin, particularly if there's issues with sleep, um, anti-inflammatory, boost the antioxidants, but CBD and fish oil kind of go head to head right there. And CBD may actually be a really potent stimulator of the NRF2 pathway, which is the way a lot of these vegetables and herbs work and they they basically stimulate these hormetic productions of antioxidants so that you're not taking too many it really sort of selectively figures out how much your body needs and cbd is very effective for stimulating that pathway i didn't realize that until recently mm -hmm. so wh why don't you discuss the 10 top 10 rules of engagement mm. your book great um when do you want me to just run through those yeah, briefly, because, you know, I mean, people, you know, if you haven't figured out 
by now that this is, if you have the TBI or you know someone that does, this concussion repair manual is just, you just don't wait, just get this book because you need it. There's a, there's a lot more details in this book than we had the time to discuss. And it's a, an amazing resource that compiles most of them in one place so that you don't have to go out and do the homework yourself. Dan, Dan's already spent 20 years doing it for you. So, <laughs> Yeah. What I wanted to do in the book is I essentially wanted to write it as a fairly uh, available user's manual for the, the person going through the experience themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different methodologies, kind of like a buffet of options. And the encouragement is to get clear on what are the available tools in somebody's immediate environment that are accessible that they can try on and then stay consistent with that methodology while tracking their symptoms over a 30-day period and then while staying with that if there was improvement great then continue to move on if there was improvement but you think there could be more improvement that you may need to up the intensity or the frequency so the intensity might be, well, maybe we need to go, we didn't even talk about like ketogenic diet, um, which I know you know a lot about in regards to fat for fuel. Um, it might be going even more keto or going even lower carb or doing that in a more kind of like intense way that is stacked on with flotation, low-level laser therapy, find a hyperbaric oxygen um, tank that somebody can dive and do that regularly. So whatever the thing, like pick the two top two or three methods that you want to try on, stay with that over a period of time, be diligent, get support and accountability, and make sure that you're tracking your top symptoms from the concussion or the neurologic injury. And if that's sleep, irritability, focus, concentration, et cetera, I put a part in the book that's a workbook so that it's easy to kind of track it on a daily basis. And right. then, so that's the tracking and the accountability um, part of it. And, and even more important than I think that is staying diligent and knowing deeply that everything is possible to heal. Everything's been healed. The brain is super plastic. We know that being consistently engaged in optimized modes of thinking, optimized um, modes of inspiration and empowerment affect people's healing. So it's as much of a mindset thing as it is a neuroanatomy and neurochemical thing. And when we bring it back into our own selves around personal empowerment and optimization and faith, faith is one of those things like, I know I can get better. I know this can get better. I might need support in this regard and I'll recruit the support that I need. not going to uh, settle for feeling compromised for the rest of my life. Great. Well, congratulations on putting together such an, a, a magnificent resource that uh, most everyone viewing this would benefit from. I th just having it in your library as a resource because if you haven't had a TBI, you're really the rare individual, but I'm, there's no doubt in my mind you know someone that, that does. And there's, there's a strong likelihood if you haven't had a TBI, TBI yet, you will get one in the future. So better to be prepared and have the knowledge before you need it. So uh, the concussion repair manual, book to get, and I really appreciate your, all the work effort that you put into it. Getting a book is like one of the best investments you can make for $15, $20. You get like 20 years of someone's hard work. You know? <laughs> and writing a book is not easy. I've done a number of them. So I know what you go through to put it together. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be on the show with you, Dr. McCullough.